When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. I'm Afwa Hush. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. Love Cleopatra. She is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. She's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's nose... Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Long-term listeners to this podcast will remember a wonderful early episode on Henry VIII's clothes with Professor Maria Haywood. We talked about what elements made up a man's outfit in the early Tudor period, why Henry VIII was described as the best-dressed sovereign in the world, and how much he spent on his wardrobe. But we left untouched the whole question of how to clothe a Tudor queen. So I invited Professor Hayward back onto the podcast to share her great knowledge with us about the fashions of Henry VIII's wives, and I'm delighted to say she said yes. Professor Maria Hayward holds a chair in early modern history at the University of Southampton and is the author of many books, including the absolutely gorgeous and vital book, Dress at the Court of Henry VIII. And today she joins me to answer such questions as how did female fashion change over Henry's reign? Did foreign queens influence English fashion or adopt it? And did women wear underclothes? Maria, it is always a treat to see you and to chat with you. Let's have a think then. When you talked to us about male clothing, you talked about the layers and items that made up a male outfit in the early Tudor period. Do you think you could do the same for women, please? Certainly. And I think the first thing to say is that the female wardrobe contained less sort of specific items. So the variety that we can see in the portraits is created by a smaller number of garments. So it's then very much determined by the cut, the colour, 
the choice of fabrics. But in terms of layers, you would start off with your smock or your shift, which would be the linen layer that was closest to the skin. And that was designed very much to protect your skin from the other layers on top, but also to protect those layers from your sweat and everything else. So it was the launderable <laughs> layer. So over the smock, and for women, the neckline of that, and also the cuffs at the end of the sleeves, long sleeves, would be visible. So there was a hint of that, and if you look in portraits, you can see it. Over that, we would then have some sort of garment that would provide definition to the upper body. At the beginning of the period we're looking at, that might be integral to the kirtle. And there are descriptions where they refer to the upper section or the upper bodies of the kirtle being stiffened with reeds or bents, for instance. But towards the middle of the 16th century and onwards, we get the emergence of a separate garment referred to as a pair of bodies. And if we were taking this discussion into Elizabeth's reign, she has someone who specifically makes those for her and she has multiple sets. And those very much shape the female body to give us that look that we think of early Tudor women so quite round in the waist and with the bust being pushed up but flattened to sort of give you that neat even <laughs> shape at the top. Um, over that then you might either have the kirtle and gown or towards by the sort of 1540s you would have a gown and where the skirt opens at the front that area would be infilled by what's often referred to as a forepart. So it gives you the sense of contrast between the outer sections of the skirt and that central decorative element in the middle. So those are the principal garments. Thinking about a gown, we might easily mistake that as a synonym for dress. Could you differentiate for us between a dress as we think of it and a gown for a female in the Tudor period? That's an interesting point of discussion, because in one sense, what they have in common is that they are the principal female piece of clothing. This period they can sometimes be made in one piece but sometimes in multiple sections which can be put together to look like it's a complete garment. In particular the sleeves may often be separate or elements of the sleeves may be separate and then attached. So that's probably the primary difference in terms of what the gown is. The difficulty, of course, is that we have a gown for men as well, but a very different shape, different construction and different sort of purpose in essence. Um, so the gown is the main body garment for women in this period. And how are fashions changing over the first 50 years of the 16th century, roughly coterminous with Henry VIII's reign? So basically the gown is that prime garment that we will be able to see if we look at, say, tomb effigies or if we look at portraits. So in that sense, it's not as if we're getting something radically different to that during this period. So they are small changes. So they're changes to the neckline, to the sleeves and to the profile of the skirt of the gown. So in terms of if we think about the neckline, if you look in the sort of 1510s and 1520s, you have that classic sort of fairly low square neckline that you see in portraits of Elizabeth of York and Catherine of Aragon. However, by the 1540s, we tend to have a shift towards the essential bodice of the gown changing and it now has a high neckline. In that sense, more shaped on a par with the male doublet in essence. In terms of the profile of the skirt, we go from a skirt that 
falls moderately naturally from the waistline at the beginning of the century to a skirt that's held out by the farthingale which gives it that very distinctive conical shape that you can see in the full-length portrait of Catherine Parr for instance and I suppose the other big area where you get difference is the sleeves so they're often shown as being quite close fitting to the arms in say those portraits of someone like Elizabeth of York but by the time again we get to say Jane Seymour in those two portraits by Holbein we can see that there's the sort of undersleeve which in essence is part of the upper bodied part of the gown and to that you can attach oversleeves and you can sort of mix and match those oversleeves in tandem with the forepart for instance and you can make one gown look like a whole set of garments by the sort of careful manipulation of the component parts but yes those are the probably within the clothes themselves the three cheap areas where we'll see change so sleeves get bigger and more ornate necklines go up and skirt profile goes out and takes on that sort of distinctive conical shape and we often see women sending each other sleeves as a gift, don't we? I remember coming across some of those in the Lyle letters. It's a nice domestic gift, a fashionable gift, but you don't have to buy the whole gown. Absolutely. And again, if we think back to the two portraits that we have of Jane Seymour by Holbein, you know, in one of those, she's got on this amazing opulent pair of sort of cloth of tissue over sleeves. But in the other portrait, she's got on a pair of linen sleeves that are embroidered with blackwork and those might well be the sort of thing that you know someone could have sent her as a gift and as you say you've either got the pleasure of having gone and chosen this for someone or potentially embroidered it yourself and that then gives you that sort of personal element and I think that's one of the things that's so nice about female clothing and female gift giving because we often see as you say those personal bonds are made more personal by the gifts of clothing and yes sleeves are perfect because they give you a new look but it's not as expensive as buying a whole gown and of course you don't necessarily need to know a person's dimensions exactly either so you don't fall into that awful disaster of something that's too small or too big. It's interesting because recently for a television series, I tried on an outfit from around the 1530s, I suppose. And it's so informative, actually, putting these things on because you learn so much more about how people experience the world, kind of embodied history. But of course, it hadn't been made for me. And I was really struck by the fact I had quite big shoulders by comparison to whoever had had it designed for them and part of my smock was showing for a while which felt a little bit like I was sort of walking around in a state of dishevelment and undress by Tudor terms but it also reminded me that everything is being made bespoke. Yes absolutely and I think you raise a really interesting point there that the queens yes all their clothes would be new and specially made for them and they had regular orders and so it didn't matter if your body shape changed a little bit your tailor would just accommodate that with the next order of clothes that he made for you but for women a little bit further down the social order they might well be gifted clothes by relatives you might buy clothes second hand and as you say then you would have to deal with that fact that these hadn't been made for you and then you might need a tailor to make some adjustments for you but as you say I think actually wearing these really gives you a sense of how they make you stand how all of the different layers interact with each other as you say what should be showing and what shouldn't very much so and in terms of thinking about change I remember from a portrait of Catherine Parr that she's wearing something that looks a bit like a sort of 
bolero jacket, perhaps. What is that? As you say, I think at that point, what we're seeing is some of the influences of men's fashion on women's clothing. In particular, the upper part of the gown is being influenced by the cut of men's doublets. And this, of course, provoked quite a bit of critical comment, especially from the clergy and those sort of more Protestantly minded of the fact that, you know, this was inappropriate, that women should not be encroaching on the male preserve and the fact that they were looking like they were wearing something that derived from male fashion was a thin end of the wedge in terms of that behaviour. That's really interesting because it is in the same portrait where she's wearing a bonnet, a sort of male flat cap for those who are thinking of 18th century bonnets. And so is this something quite radical that she's doing there by this clothing? Yes, we're definitely seeing a sense of her personality in that sense. You know, at the time, they very much spoke that she made full use of the opportunities to her as Queen Consort. Yes, she isn't necessarily being pigeonholed into the classic sort of feminine view of what clothing should be like. And interestingly, we get it again in later periods. So, for instance, Henrietta Maria is criticised for wearing what looks like a very masculine style doublet with the big sort of felt hat with the feather. And again, this was seen as further evidence of her overstepping her boundaries. You know, maybe she was sort of in charge in the household. Now, one question I am intrigued by is, did women wear undergarments? Not as such. So the smock is the undergarment in essence. And for many women, they would have worn it during the day and then they might well have slept in it at night. In terms of whether they had sort of drawers or knickers or any of those sorts of items, in most cases, the answer is no. We know that Venetian courtesans wore them and that this provoked much comment and they were seen as you know, very daring, very shocking. And of course, because they would wear them in such a way that displayed the legs. And so, you know, I think that whole point about women's bodies are shrouded in clothes in this period and legs in particular are absolutely concealed. So no, the smock is in general the main body garment. And then of course they would have had stockings or short hose that would have been kept in place with ribbon garters tied above the knee. The reason I asked about the undergarments is I remember there being some discovery a while back somewhere in Germany that they had sort of dug up something that looked a bit like a bra. Yes, they were really, really interesting and they sort of changed the sense of what early modern underwear looked like. But certainly you don't get a sense of payments for anything remotely resembling that in the great wardrobe accounts. So they were not on the Tudor list, I'm afraid. How interesting. And how interesting that it's payments that can show you that, account books. And thinking about Henry VIII's queens, do we see differences in fashion from those who have spent their formative years abroad? So Catherine of Aragon, Anne Boleyn, Anne of Cleves. Are they bringing new fashions to the court? And do they keep wearing them or do they drop them quickly? What's going on there? It's a mixture, basically. And so I think it sort of in part reflects the different women and the different circumstances they find themselves in. So Catherine, when she arrives for her wedding to Arthur, is very much dressed in the Spanish style and surrounded by a Spanish household and Spanish courtiers. And one of the things that more and others comment on is how different and unusual they look. In that sense, it was quite typical that European brides would arrive in the clothes of their homeland and that they might well often wear them for the wedding, but 
pretty soon afterwards they would then adopt the style of the country that they're marrying into and certainly I think that's what we see with Catherine. One of the things they do comment on is the fact that the women are wearing the farthingale and so she's often associated with introducing the farthingale into England, she's often associated with the introduction of black work. I suspect in the case of say black work I doubt it was her specifically as such and all the comments that you see from English writers are fairly negative on the subject of the otherness of Spanish dress and so she will adopt an English style fairly soon after her marriage to Arthur. What's interesting is once she's married to Henry she continues to wear what in essence would look like English court dress but on occasion so for instance when she goes to the field of cloth of gold she will wear elements of Spanish dress or complete Spanish dress as a means of sort of just pointing out that there's more than England and France in essence in the European situation at this point keeping a reminder of Spanish interests In terms of Anne Boleyn, she is very much seen as promoting French style and some of the older dress history books suggested that she was the one who brought the French hood, for instance, in particular. That's sort of been challenged and in particular you can see examples of these much earlier. In particular, you might well associate them with the marriage more of Henry's sister Mary to the King of France where we might well be seeing that interchange between the English and the French courts. However, what you can say about Anne is that she was certainly regarded as being very elegant in her dress and it was commented upon when she turned to England and that um, in addition to her wit and her personality, that yes, her appearance was markedly different to Catherine and certainly you see her playing on those French influences. So, for instance, you know, engaging with the French ambassador so he takes a key role in her coronation procession and things like that. So, again yes I think aspects of what is synonymous with French style sort of permeate the way Anne presents herself and it allows her I think to set herself up as a rival to Catherine and also you know she isn't of royal blood but she can present herself in a different sort of guise she's sort of trying to find a way of making herself a legitimately different queen consort to Catherine. And some of the commentary that we have around Anne Boleyn's clothes are in that comparison of the gable hood, the one that looks, I always think, like a little birdhouse and is covering up all the hair, and the French hood, which is showing off a bit of hair, and is slightly more sexy in terms of the clothes she's adopting. Absolutely. I think there was a generally held feeling that the gable hood was the least attractive piece of female headwear in Europe. And as you say, it's sort of frumpy and actively covering the hair. And while on the one hand that was part of its function I think it is very interesting that as you say the French hood allows you almost as a married woman to have your cake and eat it you know the hair is officially covered but you are still showing a little of that hair and it is a much more feminine smaller attractive item absolutely and Anne of Cleves when Henry's ambassadors went to the Cleves court they complained that they could not make out Anne of Cleves and her sister's figures because what they were wearing was so sort of horrendous. So German fashion clearly wasn't very popular in England. 
No. And of course, the reply of when they make that is, well, they were sort of saying, well, would you see them naked? And you almost get the feeling that the English ambassadors were saying, well, well, <laughs> yes. It reminds you of that list, doesn't it, that Henry VII draws up when he's looking for a prospective bride. And he talks about the fact that he wants them to check that she's not wearing high heels so they know what her genuine height is and, you know, check the teeth and uh, look at the figure. And there's definitely one comment about, you know, and just check that the bust is, you know, attractive. But I think it then highlights what English women were wearing at the time that was when we still had low square necklines so you would have had quite a lot of neck and chest on display and depended on you know how much bust you had as you can see from say looking at the portrait of Lady Guildford you definitely get a sense of her figure within that whereas you don't with those high-necked German gowns and obviously you could on occasion infill that low neckline with a very fine linen partlet for instance but often there's a sense that those aren't infilled so I think that probably is the big difference in terms of women's clothing is seen as I suppose as being more revealing a little less decorous than those that they're wearing in the German states. And it also reminds me of Thomas More's Utopia in which he talks about this fabled place and obviously the great question about Utopia that many an undergraduate has written about is whether he's seeing this as an idealised place or a place that should not exist and one of the things he says is you know, people see each other naked before they get married, which, of course, is pretty much what happens now. But that's the idea <laughs> that obviously is, I think, controversial. Yes. You know, I think they're genuinely wanting to check. Is this woman going to be attractive? And I think also, is this woman healthy? I think there's an element of that sense of that the body and its proportions and its beauty was a reflection of its healthiness. And I think they were interested in that sense of Henry's quest for another son would have been an important consideration here too. Although Anne of Cleves has a very tiny waistline in the portrait that we have of her by Holbein. So we do get some sense of her figure. Yes, we do. And again, that's one of the things that's quite interesting in terms of the way that those sorts of pairs of bodies worked. That, you know, if you think of a modern uncorseted woman and you sort of took a slice through, there's a sort of an oval shape, aren't they? Whereas, yes, they, they were corseted into this round shape, which makes the waist look much smaller from the front. It might not give you a smaller waist measurement overall but definitely when you see the woman front on you get a sense of a small waist that's really interesting hello if you're enjoying this podcast then i know you're gonna be fascinated by the new episodes of the history hit warfare podcast from napoleonic battles and cold war confrontations to the normandy landings and 9-11 we reveal new perspectives on how war has shaped and changed our modern world. I'm your host, James Rogers, and each week, twice a week, I team up with fellow historians, military veterans, journalists, and experts from around the world to bring you inspiring leaders. If the crossroads had fallen, then what Napoleon would have achieved is he would have severed the communications between the Allied force and the Prussian force and there wouldn't have been a Waterloo. It would have been as simple as that. Revolutionary technologies. At the time the weapons were tested, there was this you know, perception of great risk and great fear during the arms race that meant that these countries disregarded these communities' health and well-being to pursue nuclear weapons instead. And war-defining strategies. It's as though the world is incapable of finding a moderate light presence. It always wants to either swamp the place 
in trillion dollar wars or it wants to have nothing at all to do with it. And in relation to a country like Afghanistan, both approaches are catastrophic. Join us on the History Hit Warfare podcast, where we're on the front line of military history. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yanaga. This April, dive into our special miniseries. With the help of leading experts, we're tracing the foundations of England by exploring the country's most powerful Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. We'll be looking at Northumbria, Mercia and Wessex, as well as the rulers and their councils who helped shape a nation. Make sure to get every episode by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. So do you think that we should think about the relationship between clothing and identity when we're thinking about the Tudor queens? Absolutely. Clothing can reveal a lot of things about an individual. In that sense, they are dressing to promote themselves as queen consort. I think they're making some very specific statements about the status of that role. Catherine had always envisaged that that was the role she would have and she was going to dress the part for, I think, for her five successors. I think they've got the challenge of trying to slightly renegotiate the role to make it theirs, to make themselves look like the legitimate occupant of that role, to sort of maintain its status and importance and I think that very much explains why say Catherine Parr for instance is described by various ambassadors as making the fullest use of all of the things that were available to her so as the occasion required it wearing scarlet purple cloth of gold and cloth of silver all of the richest furs you know she was really determined to sort of make sure that if anyone was looking around the court that they would know that she was the most important woman present. So I think that they use it for status. As we were mentioning, I think they can use it for other aspects of identity, including national identity, which they can either play up or play down, dependent on how it suits them. So in that sense, Anne of Cleves sort of rejects the clothing of her home and replaces it with English style and we know never goes back to that previous one. So for her, she adopts this English persona, whereas for, say, Anne Boleyn, then that French element is important to her. So, yes, and then once you bring in accessories, then equally, you know, if once you look at the jewellery that the queens have, they can use it to give clear messages about their faith. So in that sense, I think it is, in this context, very important in terms of conveying messages about their appearance and equally for instance when Catherine Howard is arrested you know there are the various stages with which clothes are removed so when she's in prison she's not allowed to take anything with any jewels for instance so there's that instant sort of 
removing of aspects of her status from her. Yes, I very much like your point that clothes are used politically. I don't think I had really grasped that was the case for this period. I mean, one thinks of something like Marie Antoinette deploying you know, a ship in her hair or something to comment on a French victory, La Belle Poule or something. But I didn't realise that this was actually also true for the early 16th century. I don't think we see it as much, but you can definitely find occasions where this is going on. And I suppose you can also find more subtle examples. For instance, Jane Seymour, once she is setting up her household, she has the prospect of one or more of the daughters of Lord and Lady Lyle in her household. And she takes one of them, but says she won't have her French clothing. You know, again, I think she's making a distinct mark between her style and Anne's style. And it was quite pointed and of course it was really quite difficult for the Lyles living in Calais as they were obviously all the things they had would have been very much in that French style and French fabrics and so yes as Jane was queen if they wanted to place a daughter within her household then they obviously had to conform to the rules that she was placing on the clothing of the women that surrounded her. Do you think we have any uh, misunderstandings about the period because we import ideas of what women wore from other eras? Any that strike you particularly? I suppose one of the things that people often ask me is about the care and maintenance and just how clean or fragrant they were or weren't. And certainly we can see that the royal laundresses were very important in terms of keeping all of those linen items clean and fragrant. And so all of those linens might be changed several times in a day if you wanted to keep the body fresh and fragrant. I think probably another thing that I'm not sure I necessarily know the answer to, but there's often an assumption that women at this period don't really move very much. That sense that they're sort of corseted in a way that, say, Victorian women are, and so it isn't easy for them to move. I suspect women of high status didn't walk as such they would ride but they could go for a walk in the gardens to take the air or a walk in the long gallery I think they probably had a bit more physical freedom in the clothes and they probably could move more easily than we might give them credit for in that sense and especially in this period they're still wearing fairly flat shoes it's not as though they've got heels to negotiate either so I think they probably aren't quite as constrained as sometimes we think of them as being although I was recently watching the second season of the discovery of witches and where she sort of marches down the street I was wondering whether that did look like a slightly too much of a modern style of walking I suspect that women of that period might have walked in a slightly more stately fashion but yes I suspect they had more freedom than we maybe give them it's so interesting, isn't it, in thinking about clothing and movement. I remember I did a drama GCSE once and I remember being told to turn up one day wearing red lipstick and a high-collared white shirt, the collar up, a pencil skirt and high heels. And the whole point of it was to explore. Then we had to try and eat a sandwich, you know, without getting lipstick all over it. And, of course, you move differently when you're wearing a pencil skirt and high heels. You could basically just totter and, you know, keep your head up if you've got a high neck and all this sort of stuff. And it was just to play with this idea of clothing. And it completely changes how we can think of women in the period. Another thing from my own experience, but just having tried on these clothes within the last few months with Brigitte Webster and I discovered that we couldn't easily walk one behind another. We could walk next to each other, but because of the train being so great, you can't really talk if you're one behind each other. I mean, I wouldn't have ever thought that. 
Yes, there's a lovely comment about Elizabeth I where when she's wearing one of the big French, so the round farthingales and that she could use it to keep people away. It's just as you say, if she didn't want to speak to you, she could put the bigger farthingale on and that could keep an ambassador at sort of arm's length, literally. But, you know, if she liked you, then, of course, you know, the actual structure, it bends. You can move it. You can allow someone to get closer. As you say, I think they potentially set up boundaries, but those boundaries can be negotiated dependent on how the wearer feels about the person that they do or don't wish to speak to be seen with all of those sorts of things so yes I think as you say I think that's certainly one of the things that's very interesting is that whole sense of the amount of space you take up wearing these clothes it's a bit like wearing a backpack now I always forget when I've got it on and then you suddenly find you flatten someone on the underground yes you take up a lot less space. I think we're used to having quite a small personal space and then obviously people can impinge on it quite easily whereas then yes it would have been quite difficult to have encroached I suspect on these women because of the volume of the skirt and especially as you say once there's a train as well at the back that means they can't really approach you from the back which is going to be really useful or if you turn your back on them you can effectively block them out of a conversation. That's fascinating. And you mentioned Catherine Parr wearing a scarlet and purple and all these other colours. And we've talked before about what's permitted in terms of the sumptuary laws. But are the colours that women just don't wear or is it all free reign, really? So women aren't constrained by the sumptuary law, which is interesting. Certainly not in Henry's reign. They are by the time we get to Elizabeth's reign. But in Henry's reign, the first law just says that it won't apply to women and the others just don't even mention them at all. So it means they can wear pretty much what they like, with the caveat that obviously it's whatever their husbands, fathers can afford. Um, Or if they're widowed, obviously, then they can make their own choices, potentially. So, no, they can pretty much wear whatever they like within reason. I think on the whole, you'd probably wear colours that fitted within your social circles. So not necessarily dressing up or dressing down, but within the expectations of the group that you mixed in. And that would be similar to men. Certainly, if we look at the colours that Henry had, he had a huge spectrum. So I don't think we're going to find his wives wearing anything that's different. On occasion, we find them wearing the same colour to make a point. But I think one of the things that is interesting is that Elspeth Veal, when she was looking at fur use at this period, it declines in comparison to the 14th and 15th centuries, but status furs are still worn, and that will include sable. But also, in particular, she noted that the Tudor women of this period particularly favoured pale furs. So we see a lot of lynx, ermine and miniver, and also the pale belly fur of leopard skins. So again, these sort of pale but spotted furs were popular. And so again, you know, all of these are quite a sort of a little bit more unusual. We can see in fur choices, potentially women looking different to men in terms of what they choose. And again, we're arriving at this information in part from things like accounts and also from portraits. What's the sort of balance between where you derive your knowledge and do you sometimes find that say a portrait could be misleading? Portraits can often be hugely misleading or just deeply frustrating as well because 
most of the portraits we've got of women, with the exception, say, of Christina, Duchess of Milan, from 1500 to sort of the 1530s are half length. So they only show us, you know, from the waist up, from the front. And it's not until we get, again, that full length portrait, say, of Catherine Parr, that we get a sense of this is what a woman dressed for a formal sort of royal state occasion would have looked like. I think one of the areas where we're lucky is a lot of the good painters were really good at detail and they were really interested in clothes. So some of them might not be, and again, we certainly see this when we move into Elizabeth's reign, some of them necessarily weren't that good at faces or hands, but they were very good at clothes and embroidery and fur and all of those sorts of details. There is always, of course, that worry, are they painting a real garment or are they just painting something, a confection of their own mind? And certainly the written descriptions give you, and the few surviving things that we have that are mostly in European collections, give us a sense that what they're depicting is usually of the type of what we're seeing in the accounts. Holbein in particular made those little notes to himself about what colour the actual sitter was wearing, what fabric they were. So you get the sense he is painting what his sitters were wearing. In that sense, we're very lucky to have those amazing portraits by Holbein. If we didn't have him, I think we'd be in a very difficult position, really, to look at the Tudor court in the way that we do. So, yes, portraits are amazing but they have as with all evidence you need to look at them carefully and equally you know we've got very few portraits really for Henry in light of the length of his reign and the amount of clothes that he bought and that's just the nature of it so we tend to pin our image of what he looks like on Holbein and that sort of predominates and you just see it replicated over and over again when he's presented on the stage or in films. So I suppose that's the other problem. You end up with an over-reliance on one image that may not have been typical or as important or as long-lasting, but because we've got that one image, we've focused on it. So images are problematic, but then written material poses all sorts of interesting challenges as well. Does the written material tell us anything about who's making the clothes? I think you mentioned a tailor, John Scott, in your work. Yes. What do we know about him? (laughs) So Scott is really interesting in that he works for a number of Henry's wives and he ends up in a very interesting and potentially awkward situation where he is the Queen's tailor, so he is working for Catherine of Aragon, and when Henry orders clothes for Anne Boleyn in his Privy Purse accounts from the early 1530s, he goes to Scott, and in one sense, well, of course you would. He is the leading tailor making women's clothes in London. The fact that he happens to be your wife's tailor, you get the sense Henry obviously didn't see this as being a problem, whereas you imagine that on one level you could imagine both Anne and Catherine seeing that as a problem. But on the other hand, you know, lots of other people go to Scott as well. So we see on the Lyle when she is in Calais and she wants what's being worn at court, then her man of business, Hussey, goes to Scott and Scott then makes things for her so in that sense he is really interesting he has essentially a monopoly on making the Queen's clothes but he isn't constrained to only work for her and so he's working for a lot of the leading women both at court and in Honor's case away from court as well. That's very interesting and do you know anything about him beyond the accounts or I guess where he appears in those letters or does he disappear? 
We don't know a huge amount about him. There are various points where I think he's listed for an assessment for tax. So he's actually really quite not surprisingly, because of the job he's got, he's well paid and he's really quite wealthy. So in that sense, it demonstrates, like other of the royal craftsmen and women, that working for the crown at this point, even though the crown might not always be as prompt a payer, it is likely to be a route to your social advancement because you're going to have a good business and you might get some sort of perquisites in terms of, you know, marriages for children and those sorts of things. So we don't know a huge amount about his private life other than he works, I think, for almost all of Henry's wives. And so he is one of the sort of continuities that runs through the households of these women. I suppose the other thing that's of interest is that here we still have men making women's outer garments, but the linen items were predominantly made by women, both for women and for men. Anne would have, and Catherine and all of the others, would have had their own seamstresses, although equally that, of course, was one of the areas where the Queen consorts would often make shirts for their husband. That was seen as one of the wifely duties. And again, we see that competition between Anne and Catherine. And do we know anything about who's dressing women? Because this experience of having put clothes on is I realised you cannot do this alone. You can't dress yourself. No, you certainly can't. And I think that just because of the sheer weight of the items, especially those sort of fur-lined items, you would have needed quite a few people to help you. So, no, unfortunately, we don't have anyone who is listed as being in the position of dresser, for instance, as we do sort of later in the 17th century. So it would have been the women of the Privy Chamber that would have helped dress the Queen so that the officers of the wardrobe of the robes who actually looked after the clothes on a daily basis so packed them brushed them made sure they were in the right place those would have been men as they would have been in henry's household but whereas the yeomen of the robes would bring the clothes to the door of the king's privy chamber and then might well assist him to get dressed along with the gentlemen of the privy chamber obviously that does not work where you've got a queen and so we would see that they presumably would have brought the things to the door they may well have done the airing of them and then they would have handed them over to the women of her household and as you say probably for the more complex garments and or if they were in a hurry (laughs) she might well have I expect sort of two to three people helping her dress. It does make me wonder though further down society I suppose people are just wearing very simple smocks and kirtles that can be put on alone. Yes, absolutely. And I think there's going to be probably less fabric in the skirts of the gown and things like that. And certainly a number of these things, if you look at some of the Holbein drawings, some of the bodices that are the upper part of the gowns that you see, you can see that those are front fastening. And that would mean that for people, yes, lower down the social order, um, that would mean you could either do it yourself or potentially, you know, if you had a handy sister, mother, you know, you might well rely on, say, the other women in the house to help you dress. You take it in turns to help each other in and out of some of these garments. But yes, I think that's as you move lower down, that's where the garments are going to be a little bit simpler, a little bit lighter. And as we see right through the 16th and 17th century, once we get that sense of women wearing a pair of bodies that you want them because of the definition they give to the body shape not because they're necessarily very tight so you would be able to probably do that up for yourself. Mm. 
One final specific question. How do women wear their hair? We talked about the French hood showing a bit of it, but what's going on underneath? <laughs> it's worn long, straight. As you say, that some of those depictions of women wearing French hoods suggest that for some of them they might have had a central parting. Of course, the thing about the hood is that we tend to focus on the bit you see at the front, whereas, of course, they do actually have a hood of fabric which covers the hair at the back. And if you look at the couple of drawings that are thought to be some of the preparatory sketches for the Lady Guildford portrait, you see her from a sort of a back and a three-quarter view and that's where you can see the hood hanging down so the hair would be hanging sort of would just be brushed and down and then that would go over it and cover it and I suppose the key thing is that you know it's for married and older women that the hair is supposed to be covered demurely because it's always that point they make isn't it in the sort of coronation processions they make it for Catherine when she has the joint coronation with Henry that she's wearing her hair down and long and uncovered like an unmarried girl and that sense that for young girls their hair would probably be uncovered but as soon as you got married that would be one of the markers so if we're equally thinking about what does your clothing reveal about you for women one of the things it's going to reveal is you know are you young and available or are you married and indeed one of the markers of sex workers across Europe is that you can identify that they are working in that trade because their hair is on show even though they're evidently older but we don't have any sort of evidence of I don't know where I would look for this evidence but you know plaiting their hair for example not that I've come across no you imagine that potentially just out of practicality they might have done so when sleeping because it just means that it's just tidier and neater and out of the way no there don't seem to be that many references to at this period obviously once we move into the second half of the century that's when we start to get lots more references to false hair curling of hair pinning it up and yes, the, you know, notionally it's covered with these little tiny headdresses that are more like a sort of a fascinator in essence, honouring the requirement to cover your hair in the sort of observance, but not in the detail. But yes, we don't really hear that much about women's hair because on the whole it is covered. You wrote a really fascinating article about how people in the 16th century saw and understood textiles differently interior textiles we were talking about then but I wondered if you've encountered any of that kind of alternative perspective when it comes to understanding queenly clothing I suppose we do see some negative comments about clothing of Henry's wives and certainly I suppose if we look at some of that later material that's produced after Anne's death for instance some of the Nicholas Sander material where he's commenting about the fact that the clothing is used to cover a goiter and whether she has an extra finger and all of those sorts of things and whether the clothing is used to conceal these sorts of problems I think that that's certainly one of the things that I think is a worry more broadly, not necessarily said about English queens, but more broadly with the farthingale, is that women can use it to conceal a pregnancy. So I think that some of the criticism that we see about women's clothes in general, but obviously if that was the case with a queen, it would be particularly problematic, is that sense that clothes can conceal and be used in furtive ways that are not good for the well-being of the country. I think that that would definitely be an area where you would find that there might be anxiety over a queen's clothing. And last of all, I always think that what we choose to work on 
in our scholarly pursuits actually is quite revealing <laughs> about us, really. So why is it that you work on clothes? What is it about them that interests you? I think it's that sense that essentially everyone, however poor in the past, had clothes. We all have them now. So it's that sense of it's something that would have been a universal experience for the period that I work on. But equally, when you speak to people about your work, it's something that people have experience of themselves. And so I think that helps to make it more immediate. I must admit, it sometimes means that you do get some really, really interesting questions that come, I think, out of that familiarity with clothing. But I think that's certainly a starting point, that it isn't something that is very specific to the past. Obviously, the actual cut of them, and as we were saying, the way they shape and constrain the body potentially is specific to that particular period. But they are eminently accessible and they're absolutely within everybody's experience. For this period, I'm very interested in the whole idea of what is fashionable and how do we market. And it isn't quite like the sort of fashion system that we get by the 17th or 18th or 19th centuries. And in particular, this idea that you can self-fashion, that you can make yourself into something and appear as something that you either are or potentially are not. And that, of course, then poses the challenge when you're looking at the evidence that you have. You're seeing someone or getting a description of someone dressed on a particular day. Do we take this as indicative of what they always did, what they did for a particular event, as we were talking about, you know, maybe dressing for a particular occasion? So in that sense, you know, you can draw conclusions. You can never really be too concrete about them. They always leave you that what if sort of question, which I think is interesting. They can be a bit chameleon like. People can put on one thing in the morning and then have changed in the afternoon into something completely different. If Anne was, say, out hunting with Henry in the morning and then they were attending a revel in the evening, you know, she would be dressed incredibly differently. Does that make her a different woman and I suppose that's what's interesting about working on the elite that we do have slightly more evidence of what they're wearing what people think about what they're wearing it's quite rare that we get a sense of them actually telling us how they feel about what they wore but just occasionally you do get these little glimpses into those sorts of aspects so that's why I like working on them so their exterior helps us understand something of their interiority in essence, yes, absolutely. Thank you so much once again for coming on because that was fascinating and such an insight. And I am tempted to hold you to say, well, can you come back and talk about the late 16th century, maybe the early 17th century, maybe the late 17th century? This may be a series. <laughs> <laughs> that would be lovely. Oh, well, you're very good. I feel like I'm putting pressure on. No, no, it would be a pleasure. <laughs> thank you so much for your time. This has just been fascinating. No, thank you very much. It's been a delight. Before we finish, thank you so much for your support. We're just about to hit one million downloads since launching five months ago. I couldn't do it without you. I'd be very grateful if you'd subscribe to Not Just the Tudors and if you'd rate and review it on your podcast platform of choice. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.